So welcome everybody. Um, this is to launch the ninth Global Civil Society Yearbook, so it's very good we've been going all these years. And the idea of the yearbook uh, is something that we developed a long time ago when we decided what we wanted to do was to have a research program on global civil society. And a program on a subject like that meant somehow you had to have a product and a process that reflected global civil society. So these yearbooks are very much a, 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 an outcome of our research, but at the same time they're an outcome of a process where we have a whole lot of meetings in different places and we involve civil society and we see in a way the yearbook itself as being a kind of bridge between civil society and practitioners. And so we try to give, by giving the idea civil, global civil society some kind of substance, it seems to us that it then becomes a sort of platform uh, which legitimizes the fact that ordinary people ought to have a say in global affairs. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything more. I'm the chairperson. My name's Mary Caldor. I forgot to introduce myself. Um, I'm the director of LSE Global Governance. And before I introduce our speakers, I'm going to introduce Hakan Sekinelgin, who, together with Martin Albrow in the audience here, edited this particular version, which is focused on justice. And so I've asked Hakan to say a few words about what that's about. Thanks, Mary. Um, I didn't think I was going to say anything, but I'm asked to say something about this yearbook. Um, the theme of, the, well, the, the title of the yearbook is called Globality and the Absence of Justice, and that sort of came right at the end. We didn't start with that idea. But uh, we were interested in justice and the way justice is delivered globally and locally by various civil society organizations. Um, and while we were thinking about this, of course, Martin can contradict me as and when he wants. <laughs> uh, my memory might be different. Um, when we were looking at the issue, we realized that uh, most of the global justice debate has been quite top-down in terms of academic debate. It's uh, highly theoretical. A lot of political theorists um, are arguing about what are the uh, global justice sort of pathways, what are the ethics for global justice, etc. While on the other hand, it's top-down in the practice of it as well, to a degree due to the, um, how do I put it, um, over-legalization of the debate as sort of um, outcome of international law or international uh, human rights law or even, I would say, um, starting from always from the UN or global sort of intergovernmental organizations. And, and one... But it was very difficult to find people in the debate, mostly. I mean, why were the people who were sort of claiming justice? And, and what were they thinking about justice? What were their claims? And how were they addressed? So we decided maybe within, in, in, in um, discussion with our uh, editorial colleagues, we decided to turn the discussion on its head. And, uh, 
and try to understand how different groups, different people articulate what they think justice is. And therefore, we just um, did a whirlwind tour of some parts of the world, <laughs> went to Korea, went to uh, Bangkok, organizing workshops, bringing people together from various uh, regions, from various um, um, disciplines and, and activists, and pose them what do they think about justice, what is their sort of thinking about it. And um, so that produced a yearbook. Um, but also in producing it, we felt that most often people were articulating very directly what they see as unjust. That was the first step. They started to talk about injustice in their context, and, and they try to address something which is not just. And out of that process, their position about justice was sort of clarified and established. So it wasn't a, most of the case, it wasn't a, a prior writing, okay, justice has to be on these sort of levels, and then we have to reach that. They were really identifying something bothering them in their lives or some other people's lives. And I think or we, we thought that was quite an interesting finding of the process. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting place to, to think about global justice. If um, there is such diversity in understanding what, is, what justice is, and the question remains for us, uh, for me as a researcher, how do we think about global justice which would engage with that diversity of uh, injustices in some ways. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hakan. Um, as you see, it's a beautiful looking book and there are lots of very interesting things in it on transitional justice and other types, environmental justice. And one of the things I really like about this year's is the maps, which is a new way of presenting information we've done. We've always tried to have a chronology of global civil society events because we thought this was the way that people, global civil society is very difficult to measure and it's a dynamic process, so thinking about events. But this year what we've tried to do is to express the events in maps, which I think is a very nice development. Now we have two wonderful speakers. I'm going to start with Pierre Calam. Uh, who I've known for a very long time. And he is now the chair of the Charles Mayer Leopold Foundation, which is a fantastic foundation that has supported all sorts of civil society activities uh, all over the world, actually. And he was its executive director for many years and has now become its chair. So I'm going to hand over to him first, and then I will later introduce our second speaker, Judy. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Can I move there? Yeah. yeah, that would be great. Sorry, it's not my mother tongue, so be indulgent for my English. Even when you are old, you'll make mistakes. Maybe more and more, and this is my case today. It's always nice to answer to LSE demanding for a conference. And they, oh, they thought that I could bring some value added. It's very, very nice. 
And all the more because, uh, of course, as Mary mentioned, they have been involved for many years for the, on the building of a global civil society, I'm part of it, and also because I've been working for years on this issue of global ethics. So <laughs> how easy it will be. And furthermore, very easy topic, because uh, isn't civil society uh, ethical by definition? As it thinks it is, at least. So, easy conference. Then you start and think to the conference, and you understand it's much more complex than you would have thought, and you wonder why you didn't say no. <laughs> but now I'm here, so I will deliver the conference and try to share with you some uncomfortable questions about these relationships between uh, civil society and ethics. Uh, to start with, maybe the standpoint from which I look at the, the world. First of all, as Marie mentioned, I'm a chair of an independent foundation, Foundation Charles Paul Mayer. I've been leading it for 23 years. And uh, on that behalf, I'm no doubt part of the civil society. And uh, as our foundation devotes itself to international affairs, building international networks, I'm part of the global civil society, no doubt. Then I move to something a bit co more complicated. Uh, we are our foundation and we get our revenues uh, from the income from my fo our fortune. So the question about ethics is how is balanced the ethic of uh, investment and the ethic of using wisely the money from the revenue. Uh, it's come a, a bit more complicated. And previous to my position in, at the foundation, I was a, I've been for, for 20 years a, a senior civil servant in France. And so I was involved in many ways in the management of the real society. And I could see that uh, it's more, more, much more complex than being an ethical uh, NGO. And when you run real society, you are immediately facing dilemmas, and these things are not very, very easy sometimes. Then our foundation has uh, been supporting for years uh, an international network of the civil society, which was called the Alliance for uh, uh, Plural, Responsible, uh, and United World. And uh, with people from all over the world, especially at the moment of uh, what we call the World Citizen Assembly in 2001, we tried to understand what would be the agenda of what is now called the Great Transition. What are the major changes to occur at the 21st century if we want to have a sustainable society and a livable world uh, by 50 years from now? And we found four major building blocks uh, of this transition. And, and it's worthwhile to, to look briefly at these four blocks. The first one is how to build a global community. At the UN, one speaks about international community. And when we mention the issue of a global society, we think ourselves as a global community. But we know that we are interdependent, but uh, do we really share the feeling of a common destiny 
with people from Africa, from China, from India, from South or North America? Unfortunately not. And this is a problem when it comes to overcome the issue of sovereignty of states and it comes to building real sacrifices for uh, 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 justice in the world. So unless we succeed in building a human, lively uh, global community, unfortunately, we will be very short from reaching the enormous challenge of the great transition. Then the second building block is precisely ethics. I will come back uh, in, in a minute. The third building block is the revolution of governance. Our governance is inherited from past centuries. You know, governance is something very enormous inertia. Governance is the art of societies to run themselves and to keep in their realm of of viability, as would say uh, ecologists, and it doesn't change very quickly. So now we have had a world which has evolved very quickly, and our modes of governance, just think of the states, uh, evolve very, very slowly. So how to accelerate this change is a major challenge. And last but not least, the fourth building block is about passing from what I say economy, conceived where you get social cohesion through growth and growth of consumption of energy and non-renewable resource to economy, the word which was used until the 18th century, of which botanist Carl von Linné gave an excellent definition, which is the art to manage, I would say, our, now our world garden. And this move will be extremely complex and uh, supposes a, a deep change in the, in the idea. So all of these are very long and complex process because they address very high inertia of each of the parts. So please notice some, some points. First of all, I didn't mention any technological or scientific major changes. This is not the real point. Of course, it could help, but this is not the point nowadays. We have, I would say, even much too much learning, knowledge, compared to our wisdom and our ability to manage uh, society in an ethical manner. So no, technological uh, changes will not be at the core of the great transition. Uh, the second is mentioning ethics as a major transition is somewhat unusual. You will hear about global governance, you will hear about uh, sustainable society, but scarcely will, will you hear about the major issue of changing global ethics. And this is, for me, a, a key point. And to put it on the same footing as the other parts of the transition reminds us how complex it is to change global ethics, as much as to change global governance. Then, within uh, this uh, plural, responsible, and united uh, uh, alliance, we conducted during several years uh, intercultural and interreligious uh, dialogue. 
And uh, we came to the conclusion, on which I will come back later, that responsibility will be at the core of the global ethics at the 21st century. Not rights, but responsibility, and I will explain that. So we have launched in 2001 the Charter for Human Responsibility. It had been debated in many regions in the world, and our effort now is to put it on the international agenda as well as the governments as of the uh, civil society. Now, we're talking about relationship between governance and ethics. So I would like to raise a question. Are, is our NGO, is civil society always on the side of the good? It, it remembers me an old story. I've been trained as a civil engineer. And I had a colleague who had a young son. And his son asked, asked him, but dad, what are you doing all the day? And my friend told him, I'm building good roads. And then, ch then the child asked, but dad, who is building the bad roads? And it's something like that for the NGO and ethics. If we are good, where is the evil? Where is the evil? Who are the bad guys? <laughs> because are we living in another planet? Our parents, our children, our kids are, are on the other side. Are they bad guys when we look at them at the family table? Certainly not. So what happens? Where are they, these bad guys? And uh, it's often happened that to be good, you need to ignore where is the bad side, the dark side of the society. I will tell you another story. I was one time called by a Colombian journalist, and he was very upset because he had learned that uh, our foundation had a peace program. And he was calling me and telling me, I'm told horrible thing about your foundation. Ooh, I must have killed somebody, I don't know. And I said, what it is? I heard that you were dialoguing with the armed forces. Then I asked him, do you think we can build a peace without dialogue with armed forces? And he said, of course not. But it's the first time an NGO told me that. You know, there's this way to avoid uh, the complexity of the world for the sake of being the good guys. And exactly the same state to Colombia, to what happened with US and, and, and Europe. They divide the tasks. US was uh, on the side of the bad guys. They were trading uh, anti-guerrilla troops. And Europe was on the side of the good guy. They were supporting uh, civil society rights movements. I wonder which was the most efficient, I must confess. Because if we don't link both faces, probably we, we are impotent. So what I mean with coping with the real world is coping with the dilemmas of the real world. And uh, whereas civil society, uh, action is much too often schizophrenic, schizophrenic, sorry. 
To be on the right side of the reality, you need to other institutions to be on the bad side. In that ethical, that's not very clear. Now I move to my next question. Is the civil society always on the side of justice? So I got your book and say, oh gosh, I've got the answer there. And I, want, uh, I found your book extremely fascinating and rich, Globality and the Absence of Justice. But what fascinates me when going through the book is all the civil society movement are on the side of justice. That strikes me. That strikes me. So I wondered what we meant by what is good and what is evil. And I discovered that there was a stereotype. What is good is local indigenous poor community-based management. On the, and, and what is bad is a transnational Western market, which is on the side of the evil. That is us. So we are completely schizophrenic because we, we are on the side of the evil, but we are the good. Explain me how it works. But even more seriously, how should we share resources concentrated in a part of the world with a strong idea of sovereignty? How do we pass from small community coherence to larger coherence? This is hardly addressed issue. And another addressed issue, which is not in the book, which are the part of the civil society which are on the side of the and injustice? All the movements about NIMBY, not in my backyard. All the integrist movements, which want to pose their, 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 their view. All the neoconservative movements, and even the tax evasion networks, aren't they part of the civil society? So what is this divide between a good civil society, you know, who is automatically on the side of justice and, and the other is not very clear to me. Now, I would not be misunderstood. Uh, I think 90-90% of what is put in the book is extremely valuable and interesting, and the experiments which are presented are real experiments. What I just want to, to stress is the fact that it's not as simple as it seems when you just list a, a series of action of wonderful people fighting for justice. And it's not very clear whether a lot of nice people working for justice comes to a just world. That's not so clear, I must say. Uh, and uh, my problem is, how do we address here, here again the complexity? I take one example. There is a very interesting article about food sovereignty. Food sovereignty, and uh, I know the Via Campesina definition of food sovereignty, and I read, uh, remember you, the right of peoples to define their own agriculture. Oh, who are the peoples? Who are they? At what level? If the state is democratic, is not the state's policy uh, people's cho choice? If not, what is the real democracy against the bad one? That's not very clear, in fact. So if a government democratically elected decides for trade-off between export agriculture and uh, uh, import uh, other products, 
Is it necessary on the side of injustice? Did he betray the real people? That's not very clear. And in the my last book, on the essay on economy, I looked at the arguments of the pro-globalization and the anti-globalization. And they were the same in their way to think. And they would say, the real people is the one who think like I think. And the other, they are also the people, but they are alienated, misinformed, or misled. So each side says, I'm the true democracy, because if you were true people, you would vote for me. And this is a big risk, ethical risk. And all the populist parties, now in Europe, there is a rise in the populist party. They say exactly the same. We represent the true elites in face of uh, cosmopolitan, the true people, sorry, in face of the cosmopolitan elites. And what is a cosmopolitan elite? It's a program officer of a global civil society movement. So who is the real people? You know, and, and speaking about sovereignty of people is an extremely uh, risky uh, way to explain that we're on the side of the good. Now, my other question is, why is the human rights movement at the core of the civil society uh, as soon as ethics are discussed? Why? It's not so obvious when you think of it. Some 15 years ago, I was asked by WHO to animate a reflection about uh, ethics in WHO, about health. And very quickly, I discovered that the identity of such an organization is based on uh, a narrative which had been uh, well, uh, presented as a great example, and the narrative of WHO is the uh, uh, smallpox uh, vaccination campaign. When you would discuss with, with a WHO officer about its identity, he would relate back to the triumph of the smallpox vaccination campaign. Because the word was simple at that time. You knew what you had to do, and you would do it, and it was successful. And so I wondered whether there is a narrative story for the civil society which plays this role in terms of identity. And my answer is, it is human rights, precisely. It's a narrative, much more than a reality sometimes. And what are the characteristics of such a narrative? First of all, it's a very long-term flight fight. It goes back to the Middle Ages and then the Declaration of Independence of the U.S. By the way, I don't know whether you've been to the house of the, uh, Thomas Jefferson who, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. This guy had 150 slaves. And some of the slaves were their, his own children. But he wrote all human beings are born equal, etc. Et so it's a wonderful fairy tale about, you know. But this is a characteristic of a narrative. You transform the real history in, in, in a fairy tale. And uh, then there's the French Revolution and uh, 
then it's embedded in the Western emergence of the individual, uh, more often than not at the expense of communities, which sometimes is not said because now we're facing, uh, fighting for communities, rights, and so on and so forth. And it gives an impression of infinite progress. The wonderful thing with human rights, you've never finished your job, so you can get a life contract in as a program officer because there is always something new to do, a new right to conquer, etc., etc. That's wonderful for, for identity. And at the end, there is a clear cut between those who campaign, who are on the side of the good, and their target, the political power and the law. But ju just as for smallpox, for the debate show, problems have become a little more complex. It was simple as long as you would fight for political and civil rights. Because it could be enforced by law. But what happened when you move to economic or social or cultural rights? If your rights are denied, to whom do you oppose? To whom do you oppose? Unfortunately, it's not clear. As the Belgian lawyer, uh, Francois Hauss, would say, responsibility is a hidden face of rights. If you want to enforce rights on one side, you, have, you need responsibilities on, on the other side. So it becomes much more, much more complex. And then you have to ask, ask yourself, are there two parts in the world, the one who have to claim for their rights and the one who are responsible for enforcing it? Isn't it a bit too simple to present the world that way? I think it is. Another fairy tale is that all what is good goes hand to hand. This is fascinating. We would like to believe that. I think the example, very famous of World Bank and the uh, alleviation of poverty. Governance, good, gov good democratic governance, certainly is good. And alleviation of poverty is certainly very good. So why shouldn't we, should, shouldn't we pretend that we need good governance to alleviate poverty? There's a little problem there. It is that two-thirds of the alleviation of great poverty in the world is from the only China, which is, by the World Bank standards, a model of bad governance. Okay, try and explain me this paradox. And the, the, the same thing with uh, peace, development, uh, democracy, uh, and human rights. You would like to say that they are interdependent, that they go hand to hand, with hand, you know, there's a nice fairy tale that democracy never go to war uh, against one each other, etc., etc., which makes it a bit difficult to understand the colonization, by the way, because it was about others, fortunately. Uh, but when you look at recently the issue of Ivory Coast or, or Rwanda, or, uh, you have so many examples that these issues are different. So 
how to move from this idea we, that we are on the side of the goods and that uh, uh, human rights are the, uh, the, the, the paramount of building uh, everything else which is good to the real appreciation of, 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 the, of the reality uh, of the world. So what I mean for civil society is, uh, okay, another world is possible. Okay, let's, let, us, let, let us build it. Let us build it with all its contradiction. Don't stay at campaigning. Just build it. Nature is a commodity. Yes, good. It's not a commodity, sorry. Good. But let us build the real re governance regime which will combine justice and efficiency. We cannot just stick at uh, advocacy for the good. Now, what is at the core of ethics is dilemma. It's dilemma. Ethics is not about being good but are about management of ethical dilemmas. That is, there are many values in which you are faithful, unfortunately, in the concrete life, they come to be contradictory. And ethics is exactly about that, managing uh, dilemmas. So, in the family life, you would like your children to be in a mixed surrounding, social surrounding, because you believe in uh, equity. But on the other end, as a father, you, you want your children to have a good education, and then you send him to a public school, and therefore uh, social mixity for the others. It doesn't mean that you are an hypocrite. It means that there is a tension there between different things that you value. In a company, there is a tension between loyalty to the company, which is value in itself, probably, and the fact that you, that you have to be a whistleblower when you see that your company is aggressing environment. And you could multiply uh, the examples. Uh, take, in many countries, you are a young professional, and all your family has supported you financially to, 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 to study in a good university. And then you go to professional life. And on one side, you say, I don't want to be corrupted. No corruption. On the other side, you have to be loyal to your family, which make such wonderful effort to bring you at that new social position. So you have to give back. And there is a double bind there that you cannot avoid. So, they, you, you, and we could say a lot of things about free choice, freedom of choice, and protection, and, and things like that, and also all the tension between freedom to, to innovate and, uh, and the risk of genetic manipulations. My next point is that ethics are at the core of the community building. Of course, in a way, ethics is at the core of politics because you say, I'm choosing my leader because he, his uh, value system or her value system fits with my own priorities. But this is short term. In fact, when you look at it more carefully, you can see that any community is based on deep uh, uh, sharing uh, of ethics. I will give you an, an example. We organize a a conference in, uh, in China five years ago uh, about uh, the European Union building process. And one of the questions which was asked by our Chinese friend was, finally, is there a 
social model for Europe. And just like when you are in a forest, you know, in a forest you see very different trees and you want to say no, uh, there is no common model, uh, the UK, uh, the Dutch, uh, the uh, Spanish, uh, the French, the Italian, they have very different uh, social uh, traditions and even more from one uh, political leader to another, you may change the, 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 the priorities about the public service or public health or whatever. But he answered yes, because when you are out of the forest, you see what is common. And he said, yes, there is a social model which is based on the, the idea of social contract. That is a kind of balance between a freedom and protection, a kind of balance between right and responsibility, a way to see the connection between the different stakeholders in the society. And I would dare to say there is no community without a core common ethics. And in a way, it is a debate which is raging nowadays in Europe about uh, the, you know, you read the newspaper, the uh, uh, failure of the multicultural integration and things like that, and, the, the, and the, 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 the fear which is developing, which is the root of the populist parties about the, uh, Islam and the no, not, not, not sharing of the, the, the common uh, values. And then you discover that the rule of law plus civil, civil rights is not enough to found a community. You have to go further. So that introduces me to the question of global ethics. Are global ethics necessary and are they possible? Can the global society play a decisive role to invent, promote, and even impose such global ethics? This is a complex issue. I will go straight to my conclusion. The answer is yes. It's needed, it's possible, and the civil society has a major role to play. First of all, is it necessary? We used to say that uh, international so-called communities relying on two pillars right now the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Isn't that sufficient? There is a controversy there. A lot of my friends from the civil society pretend that if we go as far as we can with human rights, then you cover the whole of the ethic of society. I do not share this opinion. On the other hand, the UN Charter finally is, starts with the people but finishes with the heads of government. And the very basis of the UN Charter is the state and the, even the absolute conception of the state, what the political uh, scientists call the Westphalian state. How do we deal with interdependence of our world with a bunch of uh, sovereign state? Right now, nobody knows. But there is no sound basement to, go, to overcome 
sovereignty and, and to transform it. And the second point is that at the moment when it was written, just after World War II, the issue of the limit of the planet was not even in the minds. The idea that one day uh, our ecological footprint will exceed by far what the, 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 the planet can reproduce every year was absolutely out of our perception. And the idea that would impact our climate without our perception 60 years ago. So that explains why it is through the question of environment from the Stockholm First uh, International Conference on Environment that this idea of the need for a third pillar uh, came to emergence. And it should not be a surprise that it is more strong when he was preparing the, the first ever Earth Summit in 1992 in, uh, in Brazil, and we are going to celebrate the 20th birthday uh, with Rio Plus 20, uh, also in Rio in two years, that he launched the idea of having an Earth Charter to complement, to be the third pillar of, 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 of the international life. Unfortunately, uh, things were not uh, ready at that time, since we were not mature, he did not succeed to convince the head of state. But at that time, there was a lot of charters which emerged, and I will be able to join uh, Edith Cizot's word about work on listing, analyzing, comparing all, all these charters. It's extremely interesting to see how everything is emerging now and converging probably on the joint ideas of interdependence and, uh, and, and responsibility. But what are the, the main difficulties? First of all, ethics is about uh, 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 as I mentioned, about choices, and it's in between the soft law and the hard law. And states don't like that, and the juries don't like that. You know, what is it? Because you need to have a normative aspect, you need to have a cultural aspect, so it's difficult to, it's a, it's a new, new way to, to deal with it. And the second question that it has embraced about global ethics, can we discover a universal truth? Because as you know, and it is a very controversial, uh, civil rights, human rights come from our tradition and some uh, in Asia, I will not name them, uh, in the name of their culture say, no, but it's not universal. And definitely it's not. The way it has been built, you know, it's a plot between René Cassin and Roosevelt, you know, and, uh, and it's a tradition of, uh, of our own independences. It's by no means universal. But we could do that because at that time, uh, uh, the U US uh, GNP was uh, half of the GNP of the whole world. And the Western world was completely dominating at that time. But now we have to see uh, that what does it mean. And some hope about uh, some kind of uh, natural religion uh, from which we could uh, uh, discover a universal truth. Here again, I don't believe that. I don't believe we need such a strong assumption to come to global ethics and what uh, described as a practical universality. We have a global ethics because we have a global planet, a unique planet to run. It's much more modest than the idea of universal value, 
but it is operational and that's good. And so how the way we came to this idea that uh, responsibility would be the core of, uh, of ethics at the 21st century. With two, four years, four words which are related, responsibility, power, freedom, and interdependence, yes. Well, the rest I will explain in the questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for a... Thank you for a very stimulating and fascinating um, lecture. And to be sure, I think civil society has to be something about a debate about ethics. And to be sure, there must be tensions. So when you said there's a narrative of human rights, I was thinking, is that the only narrative, actually? And if you think about the UN Charter, the key point was not so much human rights that came later with the Declaration on Human Rights. It was ending war. It was to end the scourge of war. Hmm? And so I suppose one of the issues that really arises about justice is, is there a tension, in fact, between peace and justice? Because peace ending war was all about states agreeing not to go to war and to some extent maybe that is what globalization is really about that we have we have we have hardly any wars now between states um, so but at the same time we don't have peace as Judy will tell us so I think that's a very good way to move into our next speaker who is Judy L. Bashra She's part of civil society. She worked, had worked for Conciliation Resources. No, Accord. Accord, that's right. I thought it was the same thing. <laughs> and now she works for International Alert, and she works in particular on the Great Lakes region, where one of the longest and most horrible wars has been taking place. So, Judy, thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, it's very interesting to hear Pierre talking because uh, we've, we've never communicated at all until this afternoon and yet I can see that there's quite a lot of ideas floating around between the two presentations although I'm going to be talking about a very specific case um, what, what I'm planning to do in this presentation uh, is to describe a project which our Great Lakes team in International Alert has been undertaking uh, recently, um, and then share some reflections on that project, which have been inspired by the yearbook. The project is a research project on sexual violence in uh, the Eastern DRC, and I imagine that most people are aware that uh, there has been uh, a very, very high level of sexual violence over the last almost decade in the Great Lakes, but particularly in DRC. Uh, and not only large numbers, but also extreme brutality. The, uh, the, 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 the realization which led us to carry out this research was uh, that 
we are now coming up for a decade since uh, the international community first woke up to what was happening in DRC. And since then there's been a lot of um, investment of time and energy and campaigning zeal into dealing with that problem. And yet it's still with us. It has not gone away. The incidences of violence continue uh, up, until t up until now. So the question really is what can account for its perpetuation? And could it be that part of the explanation for that is that those who are trying to intervene in this situation might have uh, it incompletely understood the nature of the problem? The research uh, was uh, carried out last year in 2010, um, and it was led by Chris Dolan, who uh, is an alumnus of uh, LSE. Um, it, the, the report of the research is called uh, War is Not Yet Over, and uh, it is almost ready to go on the International Alert website. It should be there in the next week or so, I'm told. Um, the focus question, really, for this research was about the notion of rape as a weapon of war, which has been a fairly strong, a fairly marked mantra of a lot of the campaigning work around this issue. And we wanted to find out, first of all, whether it reflected what was really happening on the ground, but secondly also, was it a useful uh, explanation for the phenomenon and uh, whether it perhaps obscured other explanations. Um, the, the way the research was carried out was that um, uh, investigations, including a whole lot of different methods, were carried out in four communities in North and South Kivu. Uh, and there was another set of interviews that were carried out with um, staff of intervening agencies, including UN, international NGOs, and local NGOs. Very briefly, the conclusion that we came to about this idea of rape as a weapon of war was that there are indeed many circumstances in which it is a correct way of describing what's happened. However, there are plenty of other situations where it very clearly isn't. So that it doesn't really capture the reality on the, on the ground. We asked people in the communities why they thought that rape continues at the same levels even though the war is technically over. And their answer was, but the war isn't over. And they then described the ways in which they perceived themselves as to be living in conditions of extreme insecurity. Uh, political insecurity, physical in insecurity, economic, social, everywhere you can describe it. And the, the report discusses the different um, components of that in, in, some, in some detail. Um, when we asked them what they saw as being the indicators that would justify saying that they lived in a state of war, they pointed, first of all, to the continued existence of armed militia groups in the communities 
And the second indicator that they identified was the continued existence of very high levels of sexual violence. So people very much saw sexual violence as an indicator, uh, a way of defining war, if you like. Um, and so in doing this research, we did reach some conclusions about the starting question, but it also led us into some other questions, questions about how we define war, questions also about how the international community sees uh, the Congo. It's normally defined by the international community as being a post-conflict situation. But post-conflict is not really the way people in that situation see themselves. Um, there were elections in 2005. There's another lot of elections coming up later this year. Uh, people were led to believe, I think that's probably an accurate way of saying it, that once uh, democratically elected institutions were in place, they would be able to hold their leaders to account and then everything would be hunky-dory. And there is a, an extreme amount of disappointment that that has not happened and that nothing very significant has actually changed. Um, and so I think you can see from this, and you could see it more clearly if we could go into more detail about the, re uh, the report, that uh, the, the, the existence of rape uh, in, in the same sort of format as has been going on for uh, quite a long time um, is very much linked to other factors, a whole variety of complex factors in the environment. And that to say that it is a weapon of war it actually fails to acknowledge that complexity. We concluded that we could describe rape as a weapon of war, but we could also des describe it as a, a crime of opportunity, and in many respects also perhaps an indicator of internal conflicts within society and within individuals. So what does all that have to do with the yearbook, which is what we're here to celebrate? Um, I'm not going to pretend that I've read the whole of the yearbook, but I've <laughs> dipped into quite a few bits of it. I was particularly struck with the uh, introduction and some of the ideas there, and especially when it talks about the collectivization of the sense of injustice uh, and the fetishization of law, the idea of a sort of a global movement not necessarily of states and not necessarily of civil society, but a sort of uh, subaltern and rather unfocused, discontented mass of people. And I, it really set me uh, thinking. I found this, this uh, introduction quite inspiring in many ways. Uh, I felt that what it was describing was really, it has a lot of resonances with what we have uh, seen through this research in the Congo. Uh, there's a the very strong sense of injustice that uh, I mentioned earlier, partly to do with the existence of sexual violence and the fact that nothing has happened to actually get rid of that, but also the disappointment that the political uh, dispensation has not really led to the, uh, the sort of positive change that people wanted. 
So to that extent, the notion, the notion of the feeling of injustice and the discontent is definitely there, and it's a very important factor, which I don't think is normally being picked up by most descriptions of the, of the context. But I wasn't quite so convinced about the idea of the global linkage, and I don't really see that in this context. I think that there are three different categories of people uh, in the context who have the potential for making those sorts of linkages. But either those linkages don't exist or else they're being made in a sort of retrograde fashion. And those three groups are, first of all, the UN system and the big donors, the, 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 the global policy makers. And secondly, what you might call local leadership, which would include um, local NGOs and local um, projects of international NGOs would include uh, churches, um, local authorities, local um, community leaders. And thirdly, the communities themselves. The, the UN, you would expect to... You, you, could you could think of the UN as being the sort of ultimate actor in terms of global justice because it is so deeply founded on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, even though that might not have been the only impetus for it. Um, and in fact, in relation to sexual violence, not only in the Congo, but more generally, the UN has been highly criticized for lack of coordination and uh, lack of effectiveness in dealing with this problem. And it has responded to those criticisms. It has tried to be more coordinated. It has tried to be more focused. Um, and you may well have seen, for example, uh, a whole website devoted to the Stop Rape Now campaign uh, with an enormous amount of information and reports of different projects. And yet what is coming through is that in order to... Um, in order to um, move forward with this focused approach, uh, it's having to take on one single narrative, the, the narrative of um, the armed male aggressor and the vulnerable female victim. And that picture is a very powerful one, and it is not at all um, a, a mistake. It, it is what happens in very many cases. But there are many narratives. There are men, women, girls and boys uh, who uh, are potential victims. Um, potential perpetrators are militias, uh, male and sometimes female, um, but also men in the neighborhood, the next door neighbor, the shopkeeper, um, fathers, uncles. The, the pattern of, of how these things happen is very, very varied. And to focus exclusively on one particular picture means that a lot of ideas and, and insights into how and why the phenomenon happens at all are being missed. Um, some of the impacts of, of this uh, one-dimensional picture are projects which don't meet the needs of, for example, male victims. 
And another impact is the confusions that you find amongst staff of agencies that are implementing sexual violence projects. Um, staff who don't really know whether they're trying to deal with rape as a weapon of war or as some other phenomenon, using some other explanation. Um, staff who don't really know whether they've got reliable figures and data that they can go on to plan their projects or not. People who see a big um, disconnect between uh, what they observe happening on the ground and the policy statements that are coming from their head offices. As far as the local leadership is concerned, um, these are often people who belong to the uh, civil society, global civil society movements. Um, Pierre asked whether civil society is always on the side of justice. Well, maybe it often says it is, but that doesn't mean to say that in terms of everyday practice, uh, that's what people are doing. The, um, the, the, the organizations represented in local civil society are the major part of the interveners in the fight against sexual violence. But they also place a bit of a drag on, on it as well in certain respects. Um, and I'll come back a bit later to uh, the, the impact that um, membership of, of particular communities may have on people's attitudes. Um, certainly, there are many uh, civil society institutions which uh, have people um, who, who have perpetrated sexual violence in their own ranks and those institutions have not gone very far in trying to eradicate that. When it comes to looking at the community, the, the connection with the global is of a slightly different nature. And what I am thinking about here is that uh, our research uh, identified a very, very common view in the, in the community that um, globalization is uh, a source of, of evil which is helping to perpetuate civil, um, sexual violence. Um, people see uh, globalization as being represented by um, Western culture, mobile phones, short women in short skirts, porno videos that you can download onto your mobile, mobile phone for a few dollars. Uh, the, in, in a way it represents a whole range of, uh, of attitudes towards women and towards sexuality and towards gender relations, which let's say are not helpful in terms of de generating open debate which might uh, enable there to be more thinking around the issue of um, consensual sexual relationships. And so, if you look at those three uh, sources of potential linkage with the global, it's not evident where the collectivization part is coming from in this particular case. And I'm, I'm further inspired by the yearbook because I can see that in the chapters after the introduction, there are a lot of examples 
of where people have used that collectivization to good intent. But we don't see very many of them in this particular example. Um, so in conclusion, I'd like to make a comment about uh, the, the global policy environment. Um, the UN and the donors and policy makers and decision makers have a dilemma here. If, if, they have, uh, if their approach has failed to deal with the problem of sexual violence in the DRC or anywhere else, it's not from lack of trying or from lack of willingness. But there is a dilemma because if you want to make something happen, if you want everybody to pull together, then you've got to have one view and one approach um, and you've got to focus on something which is achievable rather than trying to focus on everything which isn't achievable. So complexity, if you like, is the enemy of actually moving forward in that sense. Um, and yet, if you do identify this single picture of what, what is the problem and what needs to be done, then the risk that you run is that it won't correspond to what's really happening on the ground. And therefore, uh, you will be missing opportunities, uh, the very opportunities that you're seeking to actually move forward. And that seems to be a very, a very difficult dilemma to move forward with. Uh, and I think that um, we've, we've heard from Pierre quite a number of ideas as to how we might think about breaking um, the disconnect between the global in policy terms and the local uh, in reality terms. But it's going to be a very difficult struggle and I think it is um, a dilemma which is inherent in the whole nature of civil society and development and peace building work. Um, and finally I wanted to just mention a phrase that comes up at the end of the introduction to the yearbook urging us to persuade enough people to work together to arrest a headlong rush to self-destruction which I thought was a very nice phrase which I will remember and, and I try to, to do that persuading of enough people to work together globally. Uh, and if you are planning to do the same thing, I would just ask you to remember that not to leave DRC out. Thank you very much, Judy, for this very sad example. Um, but I think it illustrates all the more what, what we are trying to do, in a sense, which is precisely to make that connect between the local and global policy. And uh, we see somehow the yearbook as a vehicle for doing that. So, in a way, you've nicely expressed in a, in a concrete example what we really are trying to do. And we have a little bit of time for questions, so who would like to ask a question? The lady there. I've been wondering for a while about the centrality of human rights and 
tending to think it would be more useful to have a focus on wrongs rather than rights. And uh, partly because of the Western origins. And I think maybe it would be easier to get international agreement on the basis of wrongs because uh, they then allow people more freedom to do as they want as long as you respect these these wrongs. It's something I've been wondering for a while and at the start, uh, I can't remember who it was, was talking about how people have a sense of particular injustices rather than well, an idea that, of justice. Could you speak a little um, louder? Oh, I've just a couple more things if it's all right. I've been also wondering about the consequences, the knock-on effects of past atrocities and and how they can be dealt with. And I think they, I'd had a peep at the yearbook outside and I think this was addressed and this is something that particularly worries me as regards uh, Democratic Republic of Congo where I think past atrocities from the time of King Leopold have never really been recognized and I think there, there are all sorts of knock-on effects that can go on in all kinds of atrocities and how that's dealt with although I think King Leopold also managed to economically fix things in a way that's continued and how that could be dealt with and lastly, I'm not quite sure what's meant by civil society. This is probably a bit, a bit basic. It seems to be organisations, or is it something that you are trying to set up? You, it includes non-government mental organisations, and I'm probably a bit ignorant here, but I'm not sure quite what it means. Well, fa thank you very much. So we've got three questions there now. Who else would like? Yes, Matthias here at the front. I'll try to take... And perhaps, Hakan, you'd like to come... Or Martin, as the two editors might want to answer some of the questions. Um, yes, my, my name is Matthias Konigorki-Bugi from LSE Global Governance, a question for Judy uh, El-Bushra. Uh, some observers think that... Um, uh, civil society organizations have uh, neglected one, uh, one issue, which is the problem of children born out of sexual violence in war, uh, and the discrimination and imagination they often suffer in their communities. And it is said that uh, this often happens because um, organization, people working on sexual violence think that child welfare people should deal with the issue, child welfare people expect sexual violence people deal with the issue and basically they show these people, these children fall somehow between the cracks. Would you, would you say that uh, this issue received the attention from civil society organizations working in the DRC that, uh, uh, that it would have deserved or uh, would you say that the way that organizations delimited their mandate in a way created some uh, underlap that might help perpetuating an injustice. Thank you. And then over there. Yeah. Yeah. Short question. Um, not sure if someone could comment a bit on 
on the background of, of the book and how on, uh, about the process of bringing together the contents of the book, just 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 to get an idea of um, of the actual content. And yeah, sorry if it's slightly off the mark. Okay, why don't we? What I suggest is, oh, okay, we'll take one more now, and then, and then we'll have a round of answers and see if we have time after that. Thanks. Um, so this is mainly to Professor Caldor. Um, it's actually in reply to your most recent book on global civil society. I'm just wondering, what do you think is the future of global civil society, especially considering that it's quite a new phenomenon? Where, what direction is it heading towards, and what? good can it possibly do? Great. Well, so we've got four questions and it seems to me there's one question for me and one question for Hakam, even though he says he's sitting there at the back. Um, the question for me is about civil, the meaning of civil society and global civil society, the future of global civil society, and the question for Hakan is about the contents. But I will let our two speakers answer the other questions, which I'll repeat actually. I mean, one was about, should we be talking about human wrongs rather than human rights? It doesn't work so well in French, does it? <laughs> <laughs> and another was about uh, past atrocities. I suppose the other two were really addressed to Judy, one about past atrocity and one about children that are the consequence of sexual violence. So I'll let Pierre start on human wrongs. <laughs> you start? No? Oh, you want me to start? No, no, I don't mind. No, you start. Well, first of all, if you don't mind, Mary, to comment on the future of global civil society. Absolutely. Uh, I really think we have to enlarge the purpose to the future of global society and take off civil, maybe. Uh, I would like to take an example of the China-Europa Forum that we developed over the last uh, three or four, five, five years. When you look at the relationship between societies, you can compare it in, until, say, 50 years ago, just like people belonging to different villages, and they meet to, to trade, they meet to fight, and then they go back uh, at their village. But now it's much more like roommates who share the same uh, uh, toilet, the same restroom, the same, uh, uh, same food. So anthropologically, we are changing uh, the things. It takes a long time, but uh, what we tried and developed is a prototype of what it's been to society who, which come to dialogue together. And it's a completely uh, new issue in a way because it uh, all together the uh, companies, uh, the NGO, the local authorities, and to to give a new framework for this dialogue uh, among society. So, the, the the only issue to be able to build a, a sound global governance is as a prerequisite to build a, a feeling of, of common destiny, and we are far from that. And this is what is a global society process being about. But we have to, to forget a little the word civil, which has been so often reduced to NGO, and, and NGO project, and so on and so forth, which I'm not sure is going 
very far. <laughs> and then, then for the right and wrong, uh, I think we should not be too severe. Uh, of course, uh, rights are Western, and uh, I'm a bit doubtful that the uh, civil rights movements are able to invent a real alternative paradigms. And also, in some times, uh, civil society, uh, civil, uh, human rights movements become professional with very much cynicism. It, 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 they create their own job. I mean, uh, uh, in Colombia, well, again, uh, the, 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 the civil rights movement is a second export activity after flowers. I mean, <laughs> and uh, when you stop it, and we saw that in, in Chile after Pinochet fell, we had the, 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 fine, the, the external finance uh, withdraw. However, uh, whatever Westernity and so on and so forth, the, really the Universal Declaration of Human Rights paves the way for how do we build little by little international law and combine soft law and hard law. So right now there is an imbalance between rights and responsibilities. And we can see that even in, in education. Uh, you know, I've been very close to the issue of uh, immigration for, for 45 years, and you could see uh, parents who, you know, who were facing children who were only taught about their rights, and, they, and they, they didn't know how to educate them, and they were so shameful when they would go back to the village. You know, they'd say, your, your children are absolutely ill-educated. They have no respect for the elder. They only, you know, they are spoiled. <laughs> so, uh, and also what I think is that generally speaking when you only focus on rights you isolate people it's uh, only when you talk about common responsibility that you you go together and so you can see uh, in, in in many uh, uh, poor suburbs i mean what is attracting is gangs or or or, or strong movement which talk to people about uh, leadership and about re and about duties so the, the relationship between uh, rights and social integration, in my opinion, had been uh, not very carefully looked out. But I would not go to say wrong. Uh, some, so, so, um, I do think that some human rights uh, organizations uh, are on the side of the good, but in fact they are crooks. Uh, they are living from one project to another project, and a third project is a business. Uh, but I would not say that it's wrong. I mean. Uh, Really, the, I'm fascinated by the way over the 40 years that been built little by little covenant agreements, international agreements. We have no other model right now, so I would not kill the <laughs> kill the patient. Okay, Judy. Um. Uh, the question about the sense of past injustice, I think this is uh, an extremely uh, large topic which probably goes beyond anything that we can <laughs> discuss uh, in the next few minutes. Um, clearly there, there is the recollection of past injustice and it, it stays for a very long time. Um, and. I'm sure that all of us in this room could think of examples from our own history and our own background about of um, uh, abuses that have taken place in history, which it is extremely difficult for us to get out of our heads, even when we were not necessarily directly affected by them, but our parents might have been affected by them. Um, I think that, that the whole um, 
the whole work of addressing that that problem uh, is is a major work which involves psychology and social development uh, and linking that with political and economic development and it's extremely complex um, and I, I wish I knew more about it. <laughs> um, the issue of the children of rape, uh, I don't know enough about the provision for children in Eastern DRC to really answer the question of whether there are children that fall between those cracks or not. My guess is that there are. Uh, it would make sense because um, the, the society of, of interveners is quite divided and it is fairly sort of fixed in certain camps which have their own methodologies and their own um, project concerns. Um, I think the point that, that I would like to raise about that is that uh, in my observation, the, um, the majority of mothers uh, of children born of rape in the Great Lakes, as a broad statement, um, do keep them and, and want to keep them and regard them as their children as, as their other children are. Um, obviously, that's not always the case. Some are abandoned. Um, what is perhaps a more widespread and serious problem and more, um, more relevant to, uh, um, to, the, to the whole issue about um, looking for, for the causes of sexual violence uh, is the fact that in Congo... Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, um, the very frequent pattern is that uh, a woman who has been raped um, is rejected by her family and uh, her husband and, and often by her community. Now, there are different ways in which that happens. Um, I think there is some evidence that the work of NGOs in Eastern DRC trying to raise people's awareness of these issues has started to have an effect. People are less um, inclined to uh, ostracize women who've been raped. But still, there, it does happen a great deal. And what that means is that that woman um, who is rejected by uh, those people who support her uh, means that she has to uh, fend for herself economically um, and she has to probably fend for her children economically as well. And that means all of her children, whether they've been born of rape or, or otherwise. Um, and uh, I think that um, this, this adds a very um, difficult to accept layer of of complexity to the whole issue of sexual violence because it's as though there's a sort of second violation that takes place, not inflicted by the perpetrator but by the very people that that woman regards as being her, um, her supporters. Um, and to the extent that that happens, it, it, it is very devastating, both psychologically and um, materially. Uh, I think that that is... Um, one of the areas of focus of a lot of uh, NGO work on this issue. Hakan, would you like to say something about... I actually just to ask you a question. I, I, I wasn't quite sure why you, what you were asking. 
Yeah, I, I was asking about the, the story of the book in a way and, and the process of putting it together so to, to, to get a, an idea of sort of the author's idea of perspective of the contents and what... Um, right. Uh, is that, I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it does, but I, I don't know how to tell that story. <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose, as I mentioned, we had a long discussion with Martin about what we thought about justice and civil society, etc. Then we shared our views with our broader editorial group, which includes Mary Caldor and a number of other people who are not here today. And then uh, we start to think about issues like um, past injustices, for instance. How do we think about that? And then um, one of our colleagues uh, was able to bring someone on to a discussion who was writing about sexual slavery in Korea under the Japanese occupation. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, it's a sort of snowballing. All these events we talk about, in, in most of them, there are people invited to bring what they think they are doing in terms of justice, how they um, reflect on the issues. And, and, and out of those meetings and discussions, authors emerge, issues emerge. I mean, we didn't actually limit the topics as we started. We include X, Y, Z and not the others. It was just out of the process. But also you have to understand that it's an, um, it's an editorial process, but also it has to have a time limit because if we have unlimited time, you can produce probably five volumes on the same issue, much broader. So as Mary was pointing out earlier, I think the idea is that well, this is not a definitive statement about it, but it's maybe opening up a different kind of discussion on justice and global civil society for others to pick and, 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 and have their own research out of it. Um, and I'm, you know, uh, there are a number of chapters which we didn't expect this to happen, but they become very topical suddenly. One of which is, of course, is tax justice. Uh, suddenly in the streets of London, in Oxford Street, people are sort of occupying shops, claiming that these people are not paying tax in this country. And that's, I mean, I, I'm sure they didn't think about it as a tax justice, but they thought it was quite unjust for someone like uh, David Green or whatever who owns the top shop is not paying tax or Vodafone. And I thought that was quite interesting that we managed to capture somewhat spirit of the times as well in the yearbook. And the same thing happened, Japan finally apologized from Korea in the process of the yearbook for sexual slavery. Um, so it's somewhat, um, that's the story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I might actually just add one thing to that, which is that we were very conscious at the beginning that even though we wanted to be global, we're sitting here in London at the LSE <coughs> and we've started to try and have partners with whom we work. I mean, we had partners in the Middle East and partners in India and they did bring a very different perspective from us. We didn't think so. We thought we were really global. But when actually we sat and talked to people at the University of Cairo or people at the Tartar Institute, they were all attacking us and telling us how Western we were and so on. 
And so actually it turns into a sort of organic process in which you have these events with people and they bring civil society people as well as academics and ideas come up and it eventually, at a certain moment, gels. And in this case, we had meetings in both South Korea and Thailand, as well as here, in preparation for this yearbook. So it has a sort of Eastern focus to it. Um, just finally, to finish, I mean, there's a lot to be said, and there is in this book about past atrocities. Uh, and as Judith said, it's a very complicated issue because you have... In a way, I feel as as somebody who uh, whose uh, family were many of them were killed in the Holocaust, that this is something no one can ever come to terms with. In fact, but there are ways, and there are you know there are definitely different pathways, uh, and one pathway is that this must never happen again, and another pathway is to continue to feel hatred for those who did it. And that's, that's the pathway that you somehow have to navigate, and it's extremely difficult and extremely complicated. Civil society. Uh, I have some sympathy with what Pierre said about not calling it civil society. When we started this project, what I was really interested in was what maybe it would have been better to call it globalization from below. What I was really interested in was the fact that we tend to think of globalization as this sort of abstract process that affects us all. But actually, it's the construct of human beings. And what I was interested in was all the people who contribute, how it comes about, and particularly ordinary people. So, in a way, we called it global civil society because at that moment, I, it, it was interesting. In the immediate aftermath of 89, civil society became this incredibly fashionable term. And it hadn't been a fashionable term in earlier years. It suddenly burst out. And it came to have a meaning that was very different from its classical meaning. And actually, nobody really agreed. Civil society is one of these words, actually like globalization, in which nobody actually agrees on what it means. But it came to mean NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, non-party politics. Uh, whereas actually, in its original meaning, it did have something to do with civility. It had something to do with becoming a public person and being involved in a public debate. And I think we felt that the yearbook was in a way a sort of subversive project, <laughs> given that the donors all think civil society is a good thing and they identify it with, with NGOs and non-party politics. What we were trying to introduce was the idea, actually, civil society is about having public debates about politics. It's about being engaged. It's about influencing global policy. And therefore, by using the term civil society, we somehow legitimize all those people who want to say something, whether it's about climate change, tax justice. 
So you're right, it, it's not at all naive to ask what civil society means. We teach a whole course on civil society and we never, never agree at the end of it what it really means. As for the future, I'm actually at this moment really pessimistic, to tell you the truth. Although I don't want us to end on a pessimistic uh, note. Because what seems to me to be happening is something that was, has been happening for the last 20 years, but it really matters now. Which is that the people who make political decisions don't actually have the power to make those decisions. That we have a whole series of we, we vote for people in government and they can't actually do anything in government. And we don't vote for the pe people who can do them, do things. And at the moment, it's really important to do things. There are so many incredible challenges. I mean, I think the financial crisis is very frightening. And the result of that, I think, is not that you get the nice, good, civil society of the sort we'd like to see that cares about justice and human rights. It's the Tea Party. It's the um, xenophobic right. It's the racists. And, you know, I think when people are in an economic crisis, those sorts of people are very often stronger than the guys we would like to be. Uh, you know, there's often a feeling among progressive emancipated people that you know, it'll be the students, it'll be the people fighting for tax justice, it'll be all those people will react to economic crisis. But actually, it's a whole lot of other people that react, and that makes me very worried for the coming years. Having said that, this is all about agency. So if we take that seriously, and we feel we have to be engaged in trying to solve these problems, then maybe we can create a different world. So thanks very much, everybody, and we'll have to call it an end now.